you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. So, what I've got here is a Middle English text that I've picked as like a good starter one because it's short and it's intentionally goofy. I'm not going to say it's great literature, but it's weird. And also it's kind of obscure. So even people who read a lot of medieval literature might not have read it. All right. Sounds good. So this is The Tournament of Tottenham which is written in a northern Middle English dialect, despite being set in a town just outside London. Okay. And there's some debate about why that is, but I'm pretty sure that the reason is in that place and time, the northern English dialect was the stereotypical hick dialect. And this is a a poem about peasants. And so I think this (laughs) is someone who lives near (laughs) London writing about hicks and so he made them northern even though they live in the same area oh my gosh okay all right this is like the disney robin hood i re-watched that and realized all of the characters or almost all of them have modern american country accents and not british accents and i never realized that as a kid it's the same kind of trope. I see this in a lot of american television shows where anytime a farmer shows up they have a Deep South accent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. An example of this on the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Have you seen it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, it's, it's a great show. But you may remember uh, in one of the like season ending dramas, they go up to visit a retired New York cop who now has a pig farm in Pennsylvania. But he talks yes. like he's from Alabama because he's a <laughs> farmer. You're right. You're, you're, you're dead on. So that's what's going on here. So just imagine all of these people sounding like rednecks. All right. Not that there's anything wrong with Southern accents. Most of my family's Southern. I'm down with it. I'm just saying. Hey, I was born and raised in Kentucky. So these are Middle English hicks. Yes. But the whole thing is written in a style that's supposed to imitate Arthurian romance. Okay. Since it's short, rather than summarize it, I've just translated it. Because that way I also don't have to worry about copyright. I can just straight read it. Perfect. So, it is natural to tell of these brave conquerors. Of many fighting folk we find wonders. The tournament of Tottenham have we in mind. It would be harmful if such hardiness were held back. In stories as we read of Hawken, of Harry, of Tompkin, of Terry, of them that were doughty and stalwart indeed. Again, Hawkin and Tompkin, these are peasant names, stereotypical peasant names. Okay, all right. This is exactly the kind of introduction you'd see in an Arthurian text, except they'd say, like, Gawain and Lancelot. And people right. Re- so they're pretending, like, <laughs> these are names you recognize, obviously. You know, like Cletus. <laughs> Everyone knows Cletus. <laughs> it befell in Tottenham on a festive day there was made an entertainment by the highway. Thither came all the men of the country, of Islington, of Highgate, and Hackney. Again, this is usually like, people came from France, and from India, and from Constantinople, but these are just suburbs of of the area. 
Uh, also, a lot of the other translations I found of this get confused about the uh, the word used at the beginning here. It says uh, a data day, and a lot of people just assume that's the same word as dear, and they make it, oh, it's a precious day, or an important day, or a memorable day. But uh, if you check the Middle English Dictionary, the phrase data day is used the same way we use holiday. Oh, okay, that makes sense. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a holy day, which is the word holiday. It means... It's a day where you party. Okay. So it's, it's a festival day. And all of the fragrant workers is the next line. The word used is sueta, which, oh, yes. though it sounds like sweat, uh-huh. is actually the ancestor of sweet. But in this context, it definitely just means strong smelling yeah. in a non-specific fashion. <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting some olfactory sensations here. Yeah. Yeah, so the fragrant workers. They're hopped hawkin, they're danced dawkin, they're trumpeted tompkin, and all were true drinkers. Until the day was gone, and even song passed, that they should reckon their payments and pay their accounts. Perkin the potter moved into the crowd and said, Randolph the Reeve, you have a daughter. Tib the deer. Deer is, is, that's D-E-A-R. Uh, not D-E-E-R. That would be a whole Dear. different yeah. can of worms. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's a very broad term that could mean like excellent or noble or honorable or mm-hmm, beloved. Mm-hmm. or So Tib the deer. And this is Tib is spelled T-Y-B. Yes. Okay. Therefore, I would know which of all these bachelory, which could mean young men, but is usually used to mean young knights, okay. were most worthy to marry her as his wife. Ah, I see the challenge. The rascals jumped up with their long staves and said, Randolph the Reeve, lo, this lad raves. This does all originally rhyme, but I didn't do that. (laughs) Boldly among us, your daughter he craves, and we are richer men than he, and have more wealth in cattle and in corn. Which in this case obviously means grain, because they don't have maize yet. Oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's valid. Yeah, come to think of it. Then Perkin said to Tib, I have promised that I shall always be ready in my right. No idea what that means. <laughs> no one else seems to know. Teams, the you know the the group that does all the like editions of Middle English text. Okay. I forget what it stands for. This is Future Mac speaking. Past Mac is trying to remember that Teams stands for Teaching Association for medieval studies thank you okay yeah, yeah they suggest that this means ready to defend my rights which i guess feels close enough but i feel like they're guessing fair enough Re- read the line again i shall always be ready in my right yeah i i feel like it could be defend a right or it could be to i feel like there's a little bit more of like a an ownership or like a claiming sort of feeling with it that's that's where i would go with yeah. it He's like, no, 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 I'm here to claim something. Yeah, Yeah. I can see that. I guess, hey, listeners, write in if you know. (laughs) Whether it shall be a week from today or else tomorrow morning, I feel like usually this kind of declaration covers a longer time period. Then Randolph the Reeve said, He shall forever be cursed that would tarry any longer about this talking. I would not want my daughter to suffer ill fortune, but for her greatest honor... I wish that she be wed. Therefore, a tournament shall begin one week from today to fight with a flail. 
This is a double meaning because it's both a farm tool and a weapon. Right. Different kinds yeah, of Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, because it's either like a morning star or like something you use to thresh Right, grain. right. And he who is mightiest shall... And I swear to God, this is the line. <laughs> shall enter her with joy. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> it could be worse. The other possible translations of that verb are, the verb is brauka, by the way. The other possible translations are to use or to break. I was going to say it sounds like break. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, the middle okay. the middle English dictionary suggests that it might mean to break the hymen. Yeah, that would make sense. Well, cuz she would have to be a virgin. Right, of course. You know. Course she's she a maiden for the tournament. That's why she's so dear. Oh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Although I suppose in that society even if she weren't, everyone should pretend like she is. Well, you'd have to. Yeah. Exactly. It would be rude to imply otherwise. Mhm. Well, we can't have that gossip around town. But regardless, whoever carries himself best in the tournament he shall be granted the prize by common assent to win my daughter through doubtiness of blows and coupled my brood hen who was imported from Kent. <laughs> All right. Just to sweeten the deal, you can also have this exotic imported hen all the way from Kent. Oh, you know, that would do it for me. I get a lady and a chicken. Oh, and Boom. he's not done. You also get his done cow. That's D-U-N. Like the cup. Right. <laughs> For I will spare no expense, nor will I care about cost. He shall also have my gray mare and my spotted sow. Oh, okay. So we're just giving out, you know, farm animals left and right here. Yeah, all kinds of livestock, which I think might be undermining the point because now people might be getting involved not because they want to marry his daughter, but because they want livestock. Yeah, that's fair. Especially if, since the context is not kingliness and knights, but a bunch of hicks. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, the girl's great, but I could really use that cow. Right? There were many bold lads who offered their bodies. <laughs> then they took their leave and went home. <laughs> all right. And all the next week, they prepared their apparel until it came to the day when they should do the deed. They armored themselves in mats. They set on their heads, for protection, good black bowls against the battering of bats. They sewed themselves up in sheepskins yes. so they would not burst. Each one took a black hat instead of a crest. And I want everyone to take a moment and ask yourself, how are they wearing a hat and a bowl? Which one is under the other? I feel like if it's in place of a crest, you have to have the crest on top of the bowl. So these guys are like shoving bowls and then like trying to pull their caps on over top. I feel like that would be really difficult, but it, it is the one that makes sense if it's instead yeah. of a crest. I feel like it's going to fall right off. It would it would have to, unless they're like holding the bowl and, and waiting to wear that as their helmet. And so they're, they're prancing around wearing these caps and then they put the bowl on when they go into combat that might also work but then but then you're stuck carrying this bowl around yeah so either way you look ridiculous they also had a harrow broad as a fan on top of their chest now this was mistranslated in some of the earliest editions and it's caused people confusion ever since because they look at the original translation and go like i guess that guy knew what he was talking about <laughs> Because clearly, the person who originally did the translation had never been on a farm. Okay. Because he looked at the word harrow and was like, 
arrow. They have a broad arrow. No, because th- yeah. that's not the point I, of the story. No. A, why would they have an arrow? B, why would they have a broad arrow like a fan? Why would that exist? C, why would they put it on their chest? Pimps. <laughs> that doesn't, it wouldn't make any sense. So do enlighten me. All right, so a harrow is something we still have today. It's just a tool that's used to plow a field. Oh. It's like a big wooden frame. Okay, okay. So it's like the frame that a plow goes on to then. No, it's like it's literally like a checkerboard of wooden slats with nails or something in it, and you drag it across the field. Oh, the field. that makes sense. And it's also why we might describe something as harrowing. That means it feels like if you were run over with a harrow, which would be very Oh my gosh. And very stressful. Oh, I love that. That's a great etymology. But for whatever reason, the original version decided it was an arrow, and that's never quite gone away. Okay. And you can still sometimes find it in editions of this as like a footnote where they're like, I guess it's arrow, but that doesn't make any sense. No, it's arrows are just a thing. It exists. See, this is why you can't have elitism in medievalism it's like no like if if everyone comes from this academic wonderful background it's like we're not going to understand half of these texts in the first place because that's not where these people are coming from that's not what they're talking about all the time that's great sometimes you gotta come from a farm one of the things i've found in reading a lot of the uh translations of these medieval texts is a lot of the translations were done in the victorian Mm -hmm. era where it was still fashionable to do translations because it's not anymore (laughs) alas And so uh, a lot of stuff that's translated by rich Victorians kind of misses the point. But they also had a flail in their hand, probably the wheat one. Oh, I forgot. The harrow is broad as a fan. They don't mean like a waving it next to your face to keep away the bugs fan. They mean like a winnowing fan, which is about as wide as... Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially if they're wearing it on their chest. Yeah, it's just, just makeshift armor. You use what you get. And a flail in their hand with which to fight at once. They went forth. There was performed great force as to who should best test his body. He that had no good horse got himself a mare. (laughs) Okay. Such another gathering I have not often seen. When all the great company came riding to the croft. This is another like sneaky double meaning. Technically, both in Middle English and in Modern English, any outdoor area is a mm-hmm. croft. That's just, it's a very general term. But it's almost always used to mean uh, a, the enclosed field of a tenant farmer. Oh, all right. Okay, so we're getting some class drama here. Yeah, this, it's, this whole thing is class I drama. I love it. Like the, the entire poem is, I think it's like upper middle class merchants going like, right. oh, they're silly peasants. Here's what they're doing. <laughs> all right. Tib was set aloft a gray mare on a sack of feathers so she could sit comfortably, and led herself to the entrance of the croft because of the crying of all the men. I assume that means yelling and not sobbing. That would make sense. But if they've already started hitting each other, maybe some of them are crying. That's fair too. It's interesting that she has feathers to sit on because I suppose I wouldn't expect for such a hickish poem for her to be sitting on a pillow of feathers. On the other hand, I suppose they all have chickens, so... That's true, feathers, are, feathers available. are available. Yeah, it's not like goose down or something, it's just, you know, chickens. Yeah, it's probably not either down. Yeah. Regardless, because of the crying of all the men, Tib would not then go further until she had her good brood hidden set in her lap. Okay, we have an emotional support chicken. That is one of two possible interpretations I came up with for this. Okay, what's the other one? Alright, so either, as you say, like, she wants her emotional support chicken, (laughs) or 
there are a lot of people involved in this who are really interested in the livestock portion of the prize, and they want her to bring the chicken with her oh. so they can see it. <laughs> like, does she have the goods? Does she have yeah, exactly. the chicken? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Oh, wow. Tib had on a brightly colored girdle, borrowed for the occasion, and this is something that I could make no sense of, but I could not find any other possible translation. Okay. A garland on her head full of round bones. Round bones? I could find no other possible translation than bones for the word they used there. What's the word? That's wild. A garland of bones. Okay, that's pretty badass, first off. Yeah, I like the idea. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what bones it would be. Because knuckle bones are pretty round, which would make sense. That would make sense. But it's also a weird detail. Yeah, like, why, why is she going around wearing bones and a borrowed girdle? Well, I assume she doesn't have a nice girdle herself. That well, part right, makes that, sense to me. That makes sense. The word is uh, bonus. B-O-N-I-S. Bonus. B-O-N-I-S? Yeah. Huh. And it's not like a French word or something that they just botched up? It could be, but I could not find any other option. And I-S is often used as a plural. Yeah, that's right. In fact, in the very next line, they rhyme it with stonis, which is stones. Stones, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I can't find anything in the Middle English compendium either. Weird. I would almost want to say, like, a bonnet. But could you have a garland that's full of a bonnet? No, that's true. Maybe it's a type of flower? Or it's just bones. She's just wearing a garland of bones. I'm going to go with that because that is way more badass. Like she comes out here with her emotional support chicken and a garland of bones around her head. I'd be like, okay, I'm more interested in this girl now. Yeah, I love the aesthetic. Like I can see why yeah. the men are into it. <laughs> yeah. This is like rural Kentucky, like bonfire season. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of people in the Appalachians who would wear bones on their heads. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, that's what I did when I was a kid. I like I would go into the woods and I came back with like a bobcat skull. My mom wouldn't let me keep it. I was so disappointed, but I brought back some bones anyway. So <laughs> I, I would be one such girl who would wear a, a garland of bones on her head. So I'm not remotely surprised to learn that. <laughs> the aesthetic still stands is my point. Yeah. And a brooch of sapphires on her chest, which had the sign of the cross engraved in it. No cost was spared there. When Jolly Gib saw her there, he put the spurs to his gray mare so hard. Now. Oh no. The word that I'm translating as eloquence is falcon. F-A-U-C-O-N. Which is roughly what it means. Okay. But the sentence is... That she let an eloquence go forth at her rear. Oh, no. And most translators just kind of skip the whole euphemism part and just translate falcon as fart. That's amazing. I love that. (laughs) I feel like that's like that's some Victorian slang that we need to we need to go back to is like they took this Middle English where it's like, oh, I apologize for my eloquence. (laughs) (laughs) That actually is amazing. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like we need to bring this back. Yes. I feel like it would cover a lot of situations. <laughs> yes, absolutely. If if you ever make an unfortunate bodily noise in public, yeah, I apologize for my eloquence. For my eloquence. <laughs> Covers everything. Covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I vow to God, quoth Harry, 
I shall not tarry behind, even if I meet with Bernard, riding Baird the Blind. I have no idea who Bernard is, but Blind Baird is apparently a legendary magical horse from oh. the French, and I can't pronounce French. Cannot do it. That's okay. I can't either. So we're just gonna we're just gonna be the two American idiots botching up some French. The way I try to save it is I just make my accent as American as possible when I do French words. So this horse is from the French Chansons de Gesta. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Which is We apologize to every single French person or anyone who speaks French or anyone who can pronounce French. For the record. In my defense, French is like the only language that's as ridiculous as English. That's fair. I just, I can't spell anything in French. I don't understand how the vowels work. I think the trick is just to keep adding letters until it looks right. I think so. Then just throw an X in for good measure. Mm. It's like Irish. You, you throw a B and an H in, you're good. <laughs> the French phrase that I've just butchered there means something like songs of deeds. Oh, okay. Yes. Like their version of the Arthurian romances that right. mostly about Charlemagne and Roland. And right, guys. right. Okay, okay, okay. Everyone should keep out of my way, for whoever I find before me, I know I shall wound him. Well said, quoth Hawkin. And I avow, quoth Dawkin, if I meet with Tomkin, I shall take his flail from him. Okay. Which is a weirdly specific threat, I feel. Like not only towards a specific person, but... He's not even going to fight him. He's going to steal his flail. To be fair, I feel like there's less fighting going on here than they would have themselves believe. I feel like it's just going to be a really sad, like, scramble of a fight. There's a lot of that, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you're uh, you're on the right track. Yep. Yeah, I've been doing enough, you know, bonfires. <laughs> but they've got to talk about it some more. Of oh, yeah, you got to have a bayout when you're doing a romance here. You got to have some proclamations. Exactly. I vow to God, quoth Hud. Tib, you shall soon see to which of these young men the reward shall be granted. I shall defeat them all for love of you. In whatever place I come, they will fear me. My coat of arms is magnificent. And now this coat of arms, by the way, is, I'm pretty sure, intentionally meant to be as ridiculous as possible. Obviously. Okay, lay it on me. Shield of Achilles style, let's go. I bear a sieve and a rake, powdered with a fire-breathing dragon. And three pieces of a cake in each corner. Oh. Now, since he doesn't provide any colors or tinctures or the positioning of his sieve and rake, there's no way to reproduce this. But in addition to the fact that a sieve and a rake and pieces of cake are like the things on there, no sensible coat of arms would be powdered with a fire-breathing dragon. Because powdered means just like a ton of tiny ones all over it. Right. And so it wouldn't be something complex. It's supposed to be powdered with, like, dots or something. Yeah. Not a fire-breathing dragon. That's too complicated to draw, like, 20 tiny ones over the whole thing. Oh. Oh, that's weird. Because it's not, like, tongues of fire from the fire-breathing dragon. It's, so is it, like, 20 tiny little mooshoes flying yeah, that's around? that's basically what he's describing. <laughs> yeah. There's cake. Which you will not see in real heraldry. It doesn't no. make any sense no, to make someone paint that. Ooh, that would be very hard. I just, I just picture him... Like, the night before, taking his harrow and, like, getting some pig's blood or something and, like, painting it. <laughs> painting it on there. I don't know. Do they have, like, what sort of paint are they going to use? He's going to use mud. He's going to use pig's blood. I don't know. Just. 
I have no idea actually what kind of paint they'd have available. Yeah, but you know, some, right. something to Google. I vow to God, quoth Hawkin, even though I have the gout. Starting strong, buddy. <laughs> all who I find crowding in this field, when I have twice or thrice ridden through the group, shall fear me in every place they see me when I begin to play. I make a vow that I shall not, unless Tib calls me, or if I am made to fall down thrice, <laughs> not even once run away. Oh, wow. I like that he has to qualify his vow. Like, I will not run away unless Tib calls me or if I fall down too many times. Yeah, eh, he's invested. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> then said Terry and swore by his creed. Now, I'm sure this isn't supposed to sound dirty, but I could not make it not sound dirty when I translated into modern English. See, it's Middle English. So basically everything is dirty in Middle English. That's true. But the line is... You never saw a young boy further offer his body. Oof. <laughs> and I feel like in context, they obviously mean like how Lancelot will always offer to like prove accusations upon his body, meaning to fight. Right. But since we don't have that idiom, it just sounds bad. So bad. For when they fight fastest and are most in danger, I shall take Tib by the hand and lead her away. Kidnap the princess. Worked for Bowser. Thinking outside the box. Yeah. Did you say Bowser? Yeah, that's his name, right? Princess Peach and Bowser, yeah. he kidnapped the princess and it worked. <laughs> that's true. It did work. You know, while the lackeys are doing their thing, you just swoop in, sweep out the princess, and you're good to go. I like that he's not only, like, planning to cheat, but he's telling them ahead of time that's, what his plan that's is. That's true. So he retains his honor. Because I was going to say he loses all his honor doing that, but he doesn't because he said it beforehand. I told you I was going to do Yeah. It. I was completely upfront. Mm-hmm. Also, he wants you to know that he is fully armed, by which he means he has a coat of arms also. Oh. On his arms, he bears a doe trough and a baker's shovel, a saddle without a saddlecloth, and a fleece of wool. Oh, badass without a saddlecloth. Like, that's good for a horse. No. <laughs> like, he can't afford the saddlecloth? That's probably what we're supposed to take. Oh, yes. no. <laughs> I vow to God, quoth Dudman, and swore by the straw. This one took me forever to figure out. Okay. I can only find one other reference to swearing by the straw. And it was in Encyclopedia of Medieval Judaism. Oh, weird. Apparently, it was something they did in the Iberian Peninsula in the medieval times when people of different religions had to enter some sort of business deal. And usually they would make a vow according to their religion but if you have, this is a period of time when Christians and Jews and Muslims were all kind of living in the same right. area in various degrees of hostility <laughs> and or peace. Right. So if they had to cooperate in some sort of deal, what they do is hold up a piece of straw and say, I swear by he who made this straw. Oh my gosh. Because that way all of them are basically thinking about the same person or entity. Rather. Yeah, the same divine creator. But they don't have to be specific. They, they don't have to swear on a Bible because that wouldn't work. Right, exactly. Oh, that's really clever. All right. Okay. Yeah, and I feel like that's not something that just came out of nowhere. Mm -mm. The fact that it crops up in this text too suggests that maybe it was just a, a kind of rough and ready lower class oath. Yeah. They, they could say like, I swear by this or straw. By my troth. Yeah. Same yeah. sort of thing. Oh, I, sw I swear by the straw. Plus straw would, it's not something ridiculously valuable either. And no, so it's something no, ready it's, at hand you could just throw out. Yeah, it's always yeah. It's just a piece of dried grass. You've got it. What he's swearing is that 
While I still have my mare, you shall not get her, for she is well shaped and light as a roe. I think he's talking about the mare and not Tib, but I can't swear. <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about a good Middle English author here, it's both. So that's a good. <laughs> Whenever I see one of these things and I'm trying to translate one of these things and it doesn't make sense or I'm not sure to whom it's referring, I assume that it's both because. I always think that they were clever enough to do that. And we do it in modern day, you know, readings and jokes and stuff. So why shouldn't they? So I always take it as both. It probably is. All right. Yeah, I'm going to take that interpretation. When he says she is well-shaped and light as a row, he means both Tib and the mare. For the record. (laughs) Just throwing that. (laughs) Presumably this next part is definitely about the horse, but I couldn't swear to it either. There is no horse within a mile who can go before her. She will not mislead me. She will bear me, I dare say, on a long summer's day, from Islington to Hackney, and not another half mile. (laughs) Sorry, it's up to a point. All right. I feel like that's probably still a long distance for a horse to go on a summer's day, but I'm neither familiar with the geography of England nor with horse riding sufficiently to make that. I think you can do 40 miles in a day at a decent pace on horseback. But, of course, it, I mean, it depends on how far, like, how loaded the horse is. But I, I don't know what the geography would be. Now, are you taking that from actual knowledge of horses or because that's roughly how quickly they move in D&D? No, that's from actual knowledge. I, I did actually look that one up because I wanted to be accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? Because it's, I thought it was 30 miles a day by foot and then 40 miles a day by horse if you're going at a slow like pretty slow pace you're not like cantering or galloping i think so on, on a road yeah. yeah i think that's about yeah. right i think it varies if, it, it varies if you go through more difficult that's terrain. true that's true but, there yeah. we go all right i vow to god quoth perkin you speak of cold roast no idea about that particular <laughs> cold idiot roast? you speak of cold, cold roast. roast cold or pulled cold cold huh the team's edition suggests it might mean something like you are counting your chickens before they hatch yeah that would make sense but also sands who did the edition in uh middle english verse romances which is the collection i originally found this in says that a cold roast might be a common term for something trivial and so in this case it might mean you're talking nonsense okay okay so basically you're full you're full of crap is what he's saying yeah yeah. He is in some way dismissing this guy, but since the idiom didn't survive, we have no idea what the details of that dismissal might be. Okay. I shall behave more wisely without any boast. Five of the best horses that are in this host, I know I shall win them and bring them to my side and grant them to Tib. Well, boys, here is he who will fight and not flee, for I am in my jollity with joy to judge. Oh, ho, ho. I like that he's also thinking outside the box, but his plan is to steal everyone else's horses and give them to Tib as like a present, which I don't know how that's going to work. I mean, if he's marrying her, it would still be a part of his property anyway. So this is this is great because it shows your man and it shows her how much he cares for her. But he also gets the benefit of having five new horses, plus all the other livestock and a wife. That's a good interpretation. I like it. So, I mean, he's getting he's getting a lot of honor out of this. He's getting Tibbs approval because she's like, oh, five new horses. Look at us. Plus, she gets to see this guy put all the other guys to shame. Like, I'm rooting for this guy. I like him, too. 
Yeah. When they had made their vows, they hurried forth with flails and horns and wooden trumpets. I don't know if you can actually make a functional trumpet out of wood. I've never tried. It's just a medieval kazoo. Yes. <laughs> I am accepting this as canon. There we go. Medieval kazoos. It's a thing. There were all the young men of this country. They were arranged as they wished themselves. Rank and file. Their banners were very bright, made from old rat's hide. Oof. Ooh. See, see, now I'm just picturing that they didn't even bother to take off the tail. Yeah. And that's how they're tying it onto, like, some stick. Yeah, I'm imagining banner. It's, 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 like, it's not <laughs> tanned or, or anything either. It's just still furry, still covered in tails, roughly yeah. stitched together. It's like, banner. Yep, there you go. The chevron of a plow mill and the shadow of a bell powdered with moonlight. This is apparently what's painted on the banner. Okay. So we have the powdering thing again. Makes more sense for it to be little moons, though. That's more reasonable. That's true. Or what about moonbeams? Like he's got moonbeams coming down all over the place? It's difficult to say because as far as I know, moonlight is not a heraldic term. So it's not 100% clear what it's supposed to be. Right. See, it's a very specialized vocabulary and I don't think that's in it. Although if someone knows better, they can correct me. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because that's, that's not used in heraldry as far as I know either. Interesting. Uh, incidentally, a plow mill is like a sort of wooden hammer that's attached to a plow. I had to look that up, so I figured I should share it. There we go. The, the shadow of a bell is also interesting because there's a heraldic term for this. It's <gasps> adumbration, which is the prefix A-D. Umbra, right. like a shadow. Okay. T-I-O-N. Adumbration. And it's something that wasn't really used often in real heraldry. It was often used in romances. Okay. Where if a knight had lost his possessions or his title, he would paint the device on his shield black to show that there used to be something there, but it was missing. And now it was just a shadow. Oh, wow. So it's a silhouette. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's like lost honor or a lost part of family or... Yeah, it's a really cool idea. Weird. I have no idea what it's doing here, but when I looked it up, they're just like, oh yeah, this is something that was never really done in real heraldry, but shows up in romances. That's really interesting because they're even, they're using a sort of euphemism for it, like calling it a shadow of a mm -hmm. bell. That's interesting. Oh, I really like that. Yeah, I like it too. I'm going to try and remember that. Yeah, I'm going to use yeah. that. <laughs> I feel like that might be something we come back to uh, later in this episode. Definitely. Anyway, continuing on. I know it was no child's game when they met together, when each man on the field beat his fellow, and laid on stiffly, relenting for nothing, and fought wondrously fast until their horses were sweating and few words were spoken. There were flails utterly split. There were shields utterly flattened. Bowls and dishes utterly shattered and many heads broken. Ooh. There was clinking of cart saddles and clattering of buckets. The winnowing fans of many men in the field were broken. The heads of some were broken and of some the brain pans and they appeared ill before they went from there. As I assumed they Ooh. would. <laughs> yeah. A lot of blood yes. and a lot of broken pieces of wood. The boys were so weary from the fighting that they were no longer able to fight on horseback but crawled around in the field like crooked cripples, presumably still fighting oh. each other. Oh, come on, lads. Give it a rest. Perkin was so weary that he began to sink to the ground. Help, Hud, I am dead in this very group. Forty pence for a good and stout horse, 
so I can lightly come out of my misfortune, for I will spare no expense. He jumped up like a snail. I have no explanation for that. He jumped up like a snail? Because apparently, judging by the rest of this verse, he does indeed jump up, which is something I have never seen a snail do. Like slowly? Because snails go real slow. How can you jump slowly? Once you're off the ground, like you're kind of, everyone moves at the same pace. He's not, like, jumping up. He thinks he's jumping up in his head, but he's really sort of like, all right, hold on. Give me a minute. I don't know. I I don't know how to interpret that. Jumped up like a snail. I, I think what you just said is probably the best explanation we're going to get. <laughs> he then grabbed a horse by the tail, which sounds dangerous, mm, yep. and stole Dawkins' flail, and thereby won a mare. Oh, and apparently he keeps going like this because the next verse starts, Perkin won five horses and Hud won two. They were glad that they had done so. They wished to go to Tib and present them to her. The horses were so weary, they were not able to walk, but only stand still. Oh no. <laughs> Alas, quoth Hud, I lose my joy. I would like even more than a stone of cheese for dear Tib to have all of these and know they were sent by me. That's a particular unit of measurement. All right. Yeah, I checked. It is apparently still in use somewhat yeah, in England. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a weight measurement used in England. I know people measure their weight in stone a lot over there. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the only place I've seen it. And I have to admit, I only know this because of a joke on the album cover of uh, one of <laughs> nice. the Who's albums. Yep. We take knowledge where we see it. Future Mac speaking. I've edited out a couple minutes where Past Mac tries to describe an album that he does not remember the title of. He is trying to remember 1967's The Who Sell Out. The cover was decorated with mock advertisements, one of which began thusly. John Entwistle was a nine and a half stone weakling until Charles Atlas made a man of him at nine and three quarter stone. So yeah, that's... that's it. Perkin turned himself around in that very throng. He rest and rung among those weary boys. He threw them down to the earth and repeatedly shoved them. Which is mean-spirited. When he saw Terry take Tib away and ran after him. He pulled Terry from his horse and gave him plenty of his flail. And I did not translate this quotation at all. This is exactly what she says in the original. There's no interpretation done by me here. Okay. Wee! Tee-hee! Quoth Tib and laughed. <laughs> you are a doughty man. Oh, no. <laughs> at least we know that the usage of tee-hee goes all the way back. It is oh, not Oh, no. At least the cringe is still there. Like, it's been cringy since Middle English. At least she's apparently enjoying seeing these people fight over her. It's better than if she wasn't. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that'd be pretty amusing, to be sure. (laughs) Yeah, you should try and arrange that for yourself sometime. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then report back. Yeah, well, I will tell you, we have something similar up here in Alaska, and it's on i kid you not this is a real thing it's on the saloon every summer because we have a saloon we have two saloons on main street small town alaska and it's naked women's jello wrestling 
I kid you not, this is a real thing. I've heard of this. I did not know it was real. I thought it was like a joke. Nope, it's real. Wow. Oh, I know. So, you know, if, if they had this back then, we've got naked women's jello wrestling now. So, get something for everybody. I'm surprised that there is any contest that requires nudity that far north. Like, you'd think everyone would want to be as clothed as possible. You would think that, but in the summers, it's actually quite warm. Really? I mean, it's it's 71 today, which is about as warm as it's going to get. That's still warmer than I thought Alaska ever oh, got, yeah. so I've learned something. Yeah. No, it gets up into the 90s and the 100s in close up to Fairbanks. We actually have a desert up there with actual sand. Clearly, I have completely the wrong idea about it. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have every single climate. Except for tropical rainforests. Oh, but that's the best one. I know, but alas, we are not on the tropics. Anyway. Anyway. Jumping back into it. Thus they tugged and yanked until it was almost night. All the wives of Tottenham came out to see the sight by the light of torches made from straw and stems and rushes. Which I thought was interesting because like, is there something else you make torches out of? I guess it would show the class status as, as compared to using candles or tallow. Or something like that. Because I would expect some sort of tallow candle at least. But if they're using straw, they're using what they feed their cattle to also burn. I'm sure you could probably make a better torch out of like cloth wrapped around wood. But I feel like in an era where cloth has to be hand spun, that's not really an option. Well, it wouldn't be an option. And as, as far as I know, and my research is a little dated on this, that like all the torches and stuff that you see in, in video games like Uncharted or, or Tomb Raider or something like that, they have these like cloth wrapped torches and sticks of wood. Those are not effective at all. Really? Yeah. And so, I know, I didn't realize this, because I was like, yeah, it would burn decently well. No, because fires burn like that because it's older wood, and it's slow over a period of time, so you get down to the embers. But if you're looking for something for light and something to carry, you don't want to be carrying around wood that's going to flake off and, and chunk off. So, my guess is that if you're not going to use tallow, if you're not going to use a lantern or something like that, then rushes and straw would actually be a better option. But it's it's something that I've been wanting to get into more because they always use them in video games. And I kept reading that they're not actually that effective. And I'm like, what's the solution? What's what's the next step if you're not using some torch on a stick with gas that you're burning, like, what's the solution then? So I actually haven't found a solution yet, but it's something that I want to look into. That is something I'd be interested to know as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that they say reeds and straw. So maybe yeah. that's a more effective model, but I don't know. I'm sure it burns brighter, but I also feel like it doesn't burn very long. Right, faster. But they are, yeah. I mean, they are peasants. Like I've said, I don't play a lot of video games, but I've seen, like, illustrations of torches like in D&D manuals. Right. Uh, and they, they're always those cloth-wrapped, like, logs. Right. Like, that's what we have in our head, but apparently it doesn't burn that well. So I'm trying to... I, I'll have to go back in and find some research on this, but apparently that's not the most effective thing. We've just built it up like that in our head so much with, like, D&D and with the video games that we that's what we expect to see, but it's anachronistic. That's fascinating. If you find out anything about this, please let me know. Yeah, I'll make a note. Hey there, Future Zoe here, talking to you about torches. So what I was thinking of was that 
there are a bunch of different types of torches and torches in general were used, but they weren't super common. They were a great temporary light source that would have been used, you know, between five to 10 minutes. You could uh, make them out of wood with a linen wrapping and then soak that in sulfur or lye, something like that, that would burn and that would extend the period uh, in which you would get some light. Uh, you could also make cheaper torches that would be a bundle of reeds that were then dipped in wax, sulfur, etc. But usually indoor lighting would come from candles or a fire. Outdoors you'd have sconces with the grates that you're more traditionally used to seeing in video games, fantasy video games. And there were a bunch of different candle options like rush candles or lanterns. So not all of it was super expensive. You could make really cheap candles. So that's primarily what people would use indoors. Outdoors you would have a sconce. You could have something sitting by the door that you could grab and then light in the fire and then go outside if you heard something. So torches were used, but they weren't a very long term light source. And there's a fantastic video that I will link to in our blog post about this from Shadowversity. It's a fantastic YouTube video where he goes more into medieval misconceptions about torches and candles. So I highly recommend you check that out. And yeah, all right, future Zoe out. So the wives of Tottenham are bringing these torches made of straw and stems and rushes. And here's the part where it gets weird. Oh, because it hasn't already. <laughs> to fetch home their husbands who had vowed marriage to them. Whoa, 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 hold on. Read that line again. All the wives of Tottenham came to see that sight by the light of torches made from straw and stems and rushes to fetch home their husbands who had vowed marriage to them. Oh, oh, that's wild. So I'm not sure if like some of the people involved are planning to trade up or if they just want the livestock or if they just wanted to be part of it. That's interesting because there's actually, there's a technically legal way of marrying somebody where you vow yourself to them and it's technically as good as a marriage. And so it's interesting to me that the line specifically says vowed in marriage, but they do doesn't actually say married. That's true. Let me grab Yeah. The so I would guess that that's what's happening here is you have people who meet up and they vowed to marry each other. And if you have something like that happen, it has to be held up. And so one of the documents that we looked through was a court case where it was a bunch of witnesses and it was basically a he said, she said debate about whether or not they pledged to each other. And if they did pledge to each other, then they are technically married. But if, they're, if they didn't pledge to each other or if the specific language wasn't used, then there's no marriage there. Interesting. And you can't divorce. Yeah, so it's a matter of whether you can divorce or not. All right, so I just pull I just pulled out the the Sands book that I got the text mm -hmm. out of, and the line is, "To fetch home their husbands that were them troth plight." So they they plight their troth, which, They're, yeah, they pledged they pledged. Yeah. I bet that's what that is. That's that's exactly what it sounds like. That's really interesting. I'll have to go back in and have a look at the document that we were that we were going through for that because there's a term for it. Right. This is why I thought you would be great to do this with because you know all kinds of stuff. <laughs> that well, it helps that we're at two different universities doing different you know fields of research. Yeah. yeah. Let me see if I can find it because I've got my notes with me right here. It was a part of common law in the 13th century. 
Because there's the ecclesiastical court and the judicial court. Yeah, they were trying to annul the marriage. And a priest was not required for the marriage until the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Technically. That does make sense. Because I assume they had marriage before they had priests. Right. So you've got a present tense marriage, which is a contracted marriage. And then a future tense marriage, which can be released without consummation of the marriage so you can break it off to a point so it depends on the tense that you use saying either i marry you or i will marry you so if, if they said i will marry you then it can be annulled right because it's just an engagement right but if you say i marry you that's it you're married interesting yeah and some of the wives brought great harrows. Interesting thing. The translators who had previously translated this same word as arrow apparently came to their senses and decided it wasn't that here, but they still wouldn't use the word harrow. So some of them say lattice, which I guess technically a harrow is a lattice that's being used like it's a specific design. I guess. Uh, Or they say sledge. Huh. But the word is... Harrow. I'll pull it up. It's spelled almost exactly the same. It's H-A-R-W-E-S in Middle English. Yeah, that still makes sense, though. It's the same word. It's just... it's The spelling has changed. No, I'm with you on this one. And if if it's still a modern word, just use that one. We have dictionaries. I don't know whether, like, they didn't know what this word was, and they, like, looked it up, and it said, like, oh, it's a type of lattice that's pulled behind a plow, and they're like, ah, lattice. Lattice. It's, it's a thing that's right. pulled. It's a sledge. And just didn't Weird. realize that it's still a, a term and a, and a piece of equipment that people use today. Interesting. Or maybe once they got here, they're like, oh, harrow. It's not an arrow. But if I just say harrow here, it's not I'll be admitting I was work. wrong. Oh. So let's hide it. I don't know. Sometimes piling research on top of research doesn't work. Sometimes we need a clean slate. Anyway, they brought these harrows to fetch their husbands home. Oh, no. Some on doors and some on gates, some on lattices and some in feeding troughs and some in wheelbarrows. Because they're all beat up and they need help getting back, I presume. Aww. Oh, no. (laughs) From the rest of the of the poem, it doesn't sound like anyone actually got killed, but everyone's kind of badly injured. Beat up. Mm-hmm. What's the phrase that Professor Hughes would always say? Cold is the council of women, yeah, right? Yeah, that's from the sagas. Yeah. I feel like that's going to be a recurring theme. Oh, it is. Throughout all of these. Because these women are like, oh, yep, here they go again. One of the texts I've been reading lately is uh, the Gesta Romanorum, which is like a collection of fables. And a lot of them have scheming women as a trope. Ooh, gotta love the tropes. (laughs) All right. They gathered around Perkin on every side, and then, to his pride, awarded him the prize. Tib and he were able to ride home with great mirth, and were together all night until the morning, and they were in fair ascent. Now, I forgot that I'd made this note, but this actually brings us back. This is a kind of common law marriage. Hey! One that's made binding by the mutual consent of both parties rather than a priest. That's that's what the phrase fair ascent indicates. Oh, that's cool. 
And the reason that I took the time to write that down is because this poem exists in multiple manuscripts, but the reference to common law marriage apparently scandalized some of the scribes. Oh. Because in a couple of them, it's been replaced with, and to church they went. Oh, no! Oh, my gosh. I love it. That's hysterical. There's a lot of censorship in medieval literature. There really is. Come on, scribes. So he had well obtained his desire to wed dear Tiff. The excellent folk who led her were from the tournament. Now, I have no idea if these people are leading her to or from Perkins' house. Or possibly both. Interesting. So it's like a whole procession. Oh. It's, also, it's a wedding. It's yeah, a that's true. That's true. Also, for anyone who is familiar with Game of Thrones, I don't know if this is in the TV show, but it's definitely in the books. It was a medieval thing that George R. R. Martin accurately represents that sometimes people would stand outside the bedroom and listen just to make that's, sure it was being consummated. Yes, that's true. That's true. That's one of my favorite <laughs> medieval facts is that you had to make sure that there was an actual consummated marriage. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Yeah. It's important. Oh, yeah. You know, you need progeny and all that. Many people came to that feast for the occasion. Some came limping and some tripping on the stones, some with a staff in their hand, and some two at once, which I assume just means crutches. Yeah. The heads of some were broken, and of some the shoulder bones. With sorrow they came thither. Aww. <laughs> Serves them right. Woe was Hawken, woe was Harry, woe was Tompkin, woe was Terry. And so were all the young men when they met together. At that feast, they were served with a rich array. Every fifth person had a rooster's egg. I had to look this one up as well. Okay. The word used is cockenai, which is clearly cock, like rooster. Right. And I is a dialect word for egg that lost out to the kind with the G. Right. It was apparently believed at the time that particularly small or misshapen eggs had been laid by roosters rather than hens. And that's why there was something wrong with them. Oh. Yeah. Huh. I that was cool. That's so. Why would every fifth person have a rooster's egg? Because they didn't have enough act like hen eggs think, to go around. I think that's what they're they're saying. Yeah, is it either only four out of five people had hen's eggs, or they only had rooster's eggs and only enough for one in every five people? Ooh, to have them. either way, that's not a great number. Yeah, either way, the point is there's not a lot there. Yeah, I hereby declare that there should be the rooster's egg B&B in someone's D&D campaign. And if no one else is going to use it, I'm going to use it. Because I think that would be great. The rooster's egg. <laughs> I'm just going to throw this out there. You will get a player making testicle jokes. I'm counting on it. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't be players if they didn't do that. That's fair. That's fair. Oh, man. And so they sat in jollity all the long day, and at last they went to bed with great disorder. There was much mirth among them. In every corner of the house there was delicious melody, precious to hear, a song of six voices. And that's the end. Huh. So I guess it's just a style of music. Oh, okay. Yeah. That would make sense, like a round or something. Oh, that's really cool. It's interesting to me that they had this giant fight for the lady before the wedding whereas a lot of the irish sagas or a lot of the icelandic sagas have fights 
at the wedding. That's true. I didn't think of that. Yeah, that could be a stylistic difference between like the romantic style of, of narrative and storytelling and sort of the French tradition where you have to fight for the woman versus the more uncultured, shall we say, Icelandic sagas or the Irish sagas. Like, it's, it's not a good Dothraki wedding if someone doesn't die or if six men don't <laughs> die or whatever. So it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like like a good irish wedding or something like a good viking wedding something like that that is yeah that's an interesting difference yeah i hadn't thought about it but yeah you're right a fight breaking out at the wedding is a pretty common trope yeah all right end segments what say you in this segment we highlight the story's best dialogue i think i'm gonna have to go with Tibbs' glorious line of "wee tee," <laughs> I feel like that just that sums up so much of this poem for me. Of like, you've got the cringe, you've got the like astounding nature of it. It appeals to modern and medieval audiences. You know, you you just you see that, and it's like you don't need any more context to understand that whatever's going on is wrong on so many levels. <laughs> That's a good point. It is. It does have a, a, a certain, like, simple but entertaining feel mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, I like it. Personally, my favorite was Hawkins' disclaimer. Yes. When he said, like, he vowed not to run away unless Tib calls him or he's knocked down mm-hmm. three times. Three times. Oh, man. That was fantastic. Because you, you get the classic Bayot. You, you get the idea... That's like, okay, hold on, we gotta establish what we're doing here. And then you realize what's actually happening. (laughs) (laughs) We're all very dignified here. Yes, yes, of course. Very, very dignified, very honorable. Bestiary. In this segment, we discuss the best mythical critters from the text. And there are also no mythical critters involved. Unless you count the rooster's egg. That's true. Yeah, I like it. I'm digging the rooster's egg. Because it, like, for me, wow, what does it make me think of? It makes me think of, what is it, the cockatrice? Yes. Yeah, because it's, what is it? It's like a an egg that's being sat on by a frog. Something like that, yeah. I, I don't remember the it, details. Yeah, but it's it's got the head of a rooster, and if it crows, then you die if you hear it. I think it varies from uh, a version to version, but that's definitely one I've heard before. Yeah. I couldn't say where. Because, I mean, a cockatrice, it has an egg, right? It's a chicken, but the egg was incubated wrong or something. Yeah. I, th- I think you're you're right. That it's by like a toad or something. Yeah, I think and so. And so it hatches wrong. And it, wrong. It has, and it has those like basilisk-like death power. Yeah, yeah. Grant me the gourmet. In this segment, we brainstorm how different aspects of the story might be adapted into a D&D game. I think this would be a great low-level bar fight to get into. But instead of having it be a bar fight, it's like your party has to figure out how to settle this giant brawl that's going on for this local chick and her emotional support chicken. You yeah, know, That there's... was almost exactly what I had in mind. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you don't even need to change the names. You've already got these weird, you've already got the dialogue figured out. You can just pull it straight from this text. 
and like let your players run. I thought it would be a good way to get in the very first session to get your first level characters interacting with each yes. other. Yes, you're all, you're all at this uh, peasant fight over a woman. <laughs> Oh, man, like everyone comes into town or like some kid bursts through the door of the tavern and he's like, aren't you guys coming to see? They're all fighting over Tib, you know, (laughs) it's like, what's going on? It's like, you know, it's the local lady and her, you know, emotional support chicken and all the lads are going to go out and, you know, (laughs) fight for her hand in marriage. You could put it earlier in the sequence of events so that they're there when... They're initially, like, all arguing with Tib's father. And that way the player characters could have the opportunity to also get involved. It's like, no, I want her. That would be amazing. You start... Yes, that's what I want to see. I want to see a campaign start with a fight for a woman. And then, then, like, what are you going to do? Because you're going to have your entire... Like, you're going to have someone in the party who might have a wife at home. The entire campaign. That would be amazing. I would love to see that done. I feel like it would be a great way to add like an extra degree of complication is that she doesn't want to go adventuring with you. She's got her chickens at home. Yeah, she's got five new mares. But she also is pretty invested in what you're doing. Yeah. She wants to like keep tabs on you. (laughs) And since this is not just a standard medieval world, but one with magic, she could insist on calling you every day. There you go. Why haven't you sent me ascending this week? Mm, Yeah, that would be good. That would be really good. And so the whole time, the character also has to be like aware of, I've got this farm at home. And I have to make sure everything works out. Yes. Well, well, no, you could you could have him go from having a farmstead into an estate. Yeah. And like you've already got a built-in base for your players to come back to. I think it would be a lot of fun to give Tib like a lot of kind of agency over making decisions for the players. Like she Definitely. like she keeps getting involved in their discussions. <laughs> But she has a completely different set of priorities because what she wants is for her farm to be successful. Definitely. Definitely. Or maybe she wants kids and she's and she's not happy with the fact that her husband keeps going out elsewhere. Oh, no. <laughs> or her dad keeps butting in or or you do you do like the whole Odysseus Penelope thing is that, you know, next thing you know, like you get what what was his name? Perkin? Like, Perkin comes back. Yeah. It's like, what, what are you going to do? Perkin's been knocking on this door. Are you okay with the fact that all the other men in the village also also are interested in your wife? And, you know, if you're gone all the time, maybe she'll decide they're a better deal. Right. You never know. That would be fantastic. That is a, that's a great starting level <laughs> campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to do that now. That'd be, that would be so much fun. I feel like that needs to be an addendum. We need to include that in things to add to a D&D campaign is you got to have somebody, you got to have an NPC with an emotional support chicken. Yes, absolutely. I feel like that is essential at this point is an emotional support chicken. I feel like that would be a great character concept, actually, is uh, <laughs> a druid who lives on a farm and her animal companion is her emotional support chicken. Yes, I love it. And then if you really want to make it, like, beautiful and have your dramatic backstory, it's her emotional support chicken because something bad happened and she's trying to, like, get better on this farm. Somebody took her in and she just got really attached to this chicken. There you go. And then you can still have your dramatic backstory, but also have a druid with an emotional support chicken. And anything gives you an excuse to say the phrase emotional support chicken is Always. Always. (laughs) All right. In this segment, 
we try to construct a D&D party from four characters in the tents. I want the guy who said he was going to steal Tib away while everybody else was fighting. He's a good rogue. I want him in my party. Yes, I agree. I think we should also add, actually, Perkin, who who eventually won he her. He won. But he's also the same guy who came up with the idea of stealing the horses. Yeah, that's right. So I feel like he's a he's a good addition. Okay, so we need Perkin. Who was the guy who was going to steal her away? Let's see. Here it is. Terry. Terry. Terry shall take Tib by the hand and lead her away. Good old Terry. All right, who else do we want? Uh, I feel like Tib is kind of out of luck here. I, I don't necessarily want her on my party. She doesn't have a lot to bring except for her chicken. I feel like she might have a high charisma score if everyone's so interested in her. That's true. That is true. Like maybe the fact that she's not given a lot of agency in this text is just a factor of the time. That's true. And the, the, the fact is, is that Perkin and Tib, they did get along. And there was a pretty good feast mm-hmm. with a lot of singing. So she's probably pretty good at that. Okay, so Tib's on Tib's on the team. All right, I feel... So that's a bard. We have a bard. We have a rogue. Uh, Perkin is the one who knocked the rogue down and beat him. So I feel like he's probably the fighter. Yeah, definitely a fighter. And who else? Who else really stood out in this poem? I feel like you should pick this one. All right, um... I think that we should have Dudman. Dudman. He's the one with the great horse. Yeah. We don't have any any kind of magic users we could grab up here. That's true. But I feel like a good horse can't go amiss. That's true. All right, Dudman it is. So what class is he? That is a good question. So we have a, f- a, we have a fighter, a rogue, a bard. I think he's only mentioned when he's talking about his horse, so I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he's a ranger, and the horse is his animal companion. There we go. Okay, we're going with that ranger. Fantastic. All right. Got ourselves our first adventuring party. <laughs> I feel like it's a good set. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How many ages hence shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over? in states unborn and accents yet unknown. In this segment, we talk about ways in which we can see this text echoed in pieces of modern culture. There's gotta be a Disney movie where somebody's fighting for the lady's hand in marriage. I mean, that's like one of the most essential tropes of... Does Aladdin count? But he's more hes more charming her his way into it. I don't know, I haven't... Have I actually ever seen Aladdin? I don't think I've seen Aladdin. Oh, you should, it's good. Ah. Huh. It's the one that came to mind because one of Jasmine's lines is, I am not a prize to be won. That's right. That's true. So, I mean, that's even subverting it. Yeah, I think a lot of what the what they were doing in that film, or at least with the character of Jasmine, was trying to subvert that by giving her her own personality. Yeah, definitely. I'm overusing the word agency today, but that. That's okay. I really like the word agency. I think it's a powerful term, so. Yeah. You could also say Robin Hood. I was, I was thinking about Robin Hood, but he's got such a cult of his own mm-hmm. behind it. But the original poem is very, very different. But, Ro- I mean, Robin does win Maid Marian through, I mean, generally through the archery competition. Yeah. I feel like it would probably be one of the older ones, so I'm, I'm trying to think back. But Yeah. It's not Cinderella. I mean, Sleeping Beauty does it to a point, but that's just Maleficent being defeated. Yeah. It's not really, I'm going to win your hand in marriage, fair maiden. 
See, I feel like the problem is in a lot of the uh, in a lot of the Disney films, they have that whole like soulmates trope. So there isn't oh, a competition. Yeah. It's just like there are these two, and they're meant to be together. There's not like a bunch of guys competing for the same woman. Brave. With Merida. Yes, there you go. How could we have forgotten that one? I know, you even have Merida's hair. How, how did we miss it that long? Oh, I do, don't I? I've got all the curls today. Yes. If you could change your fate, would you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just ignore me. Oh, man. Yeah, you're right. This is, yeah, brave. Brave. Yeah, because that, that's the entire premise of the film is you've got to win her and she, you know, you got to win her hand at marriage. And she's like, I'll be shooting for my own hand. And so, you know, she she does. I always forget that all the um, computer animated ones even exist because they're kind of yeah. Up in time. I know they're so they're so new and oh, it's amazing the way her hair is animated. But that's a side point. <laughs> so definitely brave. Yeah, I'd say that's a that is a probably not intentional, but there's definitely a, a connection there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something else that we can see in modern culture. And that would be the Blood and Wine DLC of The Witcher 3. I understood like half of that sentence. (laughs) So for those of you who are unfamiliar, The Witcher is a wonderful, originally it was a book series. It was adapted into a game and now it's a TV series on Netflix. All of the above are wonderful. Go out and read, watch, play, all of the above. They're fantastic. But Particularly in The Witcher 3, the DLC, like the add-on game they did, is set in this world that pokes fun at the Arthurian legends. So the first thing that you do when you enter this new little duchy is fight a giant. And that immediately, you know, you immediately see that uh, from the, the Mont Saint-Michel um, lay with Arthur and Arthur slaying the giant. Excuse me, I think you mean Mount St. Michael. <laughs> Yes, for, for those of, of the, the finer English tongue. Yes, indeed. Not the coarse French. Uh, <laughs> but you play, you play off of these, these motifs, and it plays heavily off of the Lay of Marie de France. And there's actually a tournament that you, as Geralt, enter into, and you have to pick your heraldry, and you talk with the other competitors, and you, you're you competing for the Duchess herself, and there's a bunch of, you know, little challenges that you have to go through. But it, it's very interesting because they incorporate a lot of that into the game of like, okay, how do you present yourself? Are you Geralt of Rivia? Are you Geralt of the Battle of the Bridge? Like, how do you want to present yourself? What does your heraldry look like? Uh, this guy's stealing that guy's honor. And there's actually a side mission where one of the knights who's this sort of like frilly little vaguely effeminate character you end up you kind of you feel kind of bad for him because he he tries to fight and he tries to show show a big show but he he can't quite do it Um, and so you end up saving his skin more than once but he's fighting for the hand of a lady and so you do see that but that instead of playing off of sort of the peasantry it plays more off of the more noble arthurian legends where it is a big deal and you are trying to find the hand of a noble lady and a princess essentially but i think it's i think it's interesting because just like this poem subverts those ideas the game itself also subverts the ideas because the idea throughout 
the game is that Geralt is sort of this black knight who kills monsters. He's not very well liked being a witcher, someone who kills, you know, monsters and, and he's sort of on the fringes of society. But the knights are actually the ones who don't uphold the knightly virtues. And so you sort of root out you know, those who aren't upholding the knightly virtues, whereas Geralt or you as the player are upholding those knightly virtues. And so there's this weird inverse character to the game uh, as you go. And so it pokes fun at all of those. And so being a medievalist playing that game, I was like, oh, I know where that's from. Like, I, I see where that is. So that's that's one example where you, you see something that is both medieval playing off of it, sort of like how Chaucer plays off of uh, a lot of the class issues and how we're doing it in the modern day. So I thought of that one. <laughs> the Dungeon Master's Dictionary. In this segment, we highlight interesting words and phrases from the text that we have just read. There's some good terms in here. Yes, I really like the idea of adumbrated arms. I feel like we that's there's a lot of plot uh, hooks just hanging off right in there say it again adumbrated oh yes the adumbrated arms yeah the the shadow of a bell yeah yeah i like that one they could just encounter someone who has like all of the uh devices on their shield just painted over to be silhouettes and they're like it's because i've lost my family's honor i need your help to get it back he's got a yes zuko and all that yes i don't understand that reference uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender. Oh, I am finally working my way through it, and it's it's amazing, and I highly recommend it. And I'm sure so many of you out there are like, "How have you not seen this before?" It's amazing. I, I, I feel love like it. someone's tried to show it to me before, but I've, it's never really caught on in my head. That's fair. I can't explain why. Um, I know it's supposed to be very good. <laughs> That's a, I mean, I couldn't get into Game of Thrones, so. But I, I we have, I have an argument for that, but. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen Game of Thrones either, but that's because I'm worried it'll spoil the books. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. That's true. But they changed it a whole lot, so at least as far as I know, I never... I always followed it like a gossip magazine. Like, oh, that's what happened to that guy. Or, oh, that's that's what happened. But I don't know. I think another fantastic phrase... I mean, there's a lot of idioms that we can bring in. Like, uh, swearing by the straw. Yes. I think it's fantastic. I love that one. That's an easy one to bring in. And you can even give it the same kind of impact. Because even though Mm -hmm. uh, most D&D games are set in a polytheistic world, so there's not quite the same uh, idea of, well, your god's not real. But there are still competing religions. And so maybe Mm -hmm. people might not accept vows made on another person's god if they, like, don't agree with that god. Or don't trust exactly. that religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or racial issues or whatever you're getting into. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, so swearing by the straw, I think. And then you speak of cold roast. I think that's an easy one to just throw in. You can just, you know, have like a little index card next to you of like throwaway lines and just throw that one in there. That, that is a fun one. That's a great one to just throw in. I I feel like even though the meaning is not entirely clear, it is clear that it's dismissive and people will pick up on that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It helps to flesh out a a world and a society to give some idioms to it that kind of make sense, but aren't something that the players are familiar with. Yeah, exactly. 
or if if you if you're big into homebrew or world building in that way you can throw in some other term that you've created and use it like that like oh you speak of whatever whatever you know and and throw that in and then your players are like well what does that mean like what are we talking about like we're in we're in over our heads here and this guy is just on the street I feel like even pulling the names from from this one would be pretty good. They are good names. They're all very... There's some good know, names. They've got that feel to them where they're like very clearly kind of natively English, which in the way that we think of fantasy worlds makes them perfect peasant names. Right. You know, like because of the way the language developed, native English names always sound kind of peasanty to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And it, let's see, you're not you're not going to go and find a John or something mm. in a D&D world. You want it to sound, you know, off enough to really immerse your players into it. Right. But still kind of familiar. Right, exactly. So th- that's a great that's a great way to do it. I know in actually in my homebrew at the moment, I have uh, a society that's sort of broken up into little semi-aristocracies and one of them is called the Croft because what I what I did was um, I wanted to play with the etymology of it, and so each different area, each different district, if you will, or each different land, uh, is basically called the land, but in a different sort of Middle English or Old English way. Uh-huh. So yeah, so one of them is called uh, Acre Height because the word height is to be called, and acre mm-hmm. is a, a you know a parcel of land. So acre height yeah. is the name of the entire area, or one is just called the croft. So that's, I mean, that's how I've done it. That's how I've used it. So the croft, I think, is fantastic. Also, just to be clear to listeners, when I say a native English name, I mean, like, pre-French. <laughs> I know that there are, there's a lot of, of layers of colonization in Britain. Yes. And none of them are really completely native. Yes. Maybe the people who were there before the Celts, but we don't know what their names were. That's true. That's like, that's so far gone. And then and then you can ask Siri the question, like, are they even English at that point? Like, what is Englishness? But then, that's a dissertation topic. <laughs> that is a dissertation topic. <laughs> if anyone needs a dissertation topic. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Make a side category for that. Things for dissertations. Yeah. <laughs> All right, just a phrase that I feel like is good to throw in with nothing to do with the... Uh, actual context i like the phrase powdered with moonlight yeah it just sounds poetic powdered moonlight that's there's a good bit of heraldry in this which i find very very interesting and i think it speaks to whoever wrote this had a familiarity with heraldry and very clearly i think was not a member of the class that they were poking fun at so obviously in this poem i did some like research on this a long time ago because i did a i did a paper on this poem a couple of years ago now uh not a paper i presented anywhere just a paper for a similar mm-hmm. and one of the things i found is that there were mock tournaments and stuff that were put on by people who weren't part of the aristocracy but that was a an entertainment for the merchant class the actual aristocracy wasn't interested in it wow this is probably a poem written by a middle class person poking fun at the lower the lower class, class. that's so fascinating Wow. And it's it's interesting that you get to see a growing middle class even in this sort of poem because you tend to sort yeah. of, you know, 
have an idea of the aristocracy and the peasantry and that's it. But there was there was still a lot of mobility and a lot of growing middle class behavior going on. Yeah. And with it comes, of course, classism. Yeah. Because that's something that we just cannot seem to get away from. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to be able to distinguish yourself from the people that you don't want to be clumped in together with. So this was a way of the middle class saying, no, 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 we're not the peasantry. We are not the lower class. We may not be the aristocracy, but we can put on a show like the aristocracy. We can we can create works of art like the aristocracy. So it's a way of differentiating themselves by, I mean, putting down others, which is, you know, what what the aristocracy did in large part but also, you know, it's 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 weird to see that dynamic. It's interesting to see that kind of crop up. Not great, that it's a thing, <laughs> but it is kind of ubiquitous, isn't mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Best moment. In this segment, we share our favorite moments within the text. It's gotta be the description of them all fighting each other and it just going really, really poorly. Either that or the boast or the bail, like you said, of the guys being like, "All right, I've got all, I've got all my gear on, I'm all set up," and you just, it's just more and more ridiculous as you go through. I think that's my favorite because that's for me. That's when you realize how absolutely ridiculous this is. Is because you get a visual image in your head of these guys covered in horrible sheepskins and these harrows and they're holding flails and they've got bulls on their head it's like what are you doing like no (laughs) go home (laughs) that's that's definitely my favorite part personally my favorite is when perkins starts stealing horses yes i think it's only improved by the fact that the actual line is Perkin won five horses and HUD won two, which means someone saw him doing this and thought they better get in on it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Oh, man. I guess those two lads are the only two who got away with anything more than a cracked head at the end of the day. Besides Tib, who I think got the best deal out of all of us. I'm not sure if we can say she gets the best available guy, but at least an available guy who is the best according to a certain metric. That's true. That's true. And he was clever enough to take five horses, so she she's at least financially set up. Assuming that no one decides to take their horses back. That's true. But she's got her emotional support, Chicken. She'll be fine. Yeah, she'll do all right. <laughs> In this segment, each of us chooses a character from the story to steal away to our otherworldly court in the manner of the Fae of old. Okay, I feel like this one is a cop-out, but at the same time, I did say from the start that I liked the guy whose plan was to take the horses it's a good and choice. steal the girl. So I'm going to go... Those are two different people. Oh wait, they are? Perkin took the horses... Who was the guy who was going to steal Terry. the girl? Terry is the one who stole oh, the girl. Oh, that was Terry. And he, That's and right. And he did it. Remember, Perkins had to chase after him and, and get her back. That's true. That's true. I feel like the go-to would be Perkin since he did get the girl and he did prove himself. And he stole those horses. And he did steal the horses. I'm going to have to do it. I got to take Perkin. He's my man. I cannot blame you. I was... <laughs> he was also on my short list. <laughs> But I am choosing Tib. Oh! And do you know what that means? What does that mean? 
That means I won the tournament. Oh, that's true. <laughs> oh, man. That's true. And you get her emotional support chicken. Yes, she she can bring her emotional support chicken. I, who I must remind choice. you has a name. We get it on line 49. The chicken's name is Coppled. Coppled? C O P P E L D. Oh, Coppled, the emotional support chicken. She's imported from Kent, very exotic. From Kent. Oh, a Kentish emotional support chicken. <laughs> she is quite the pedigree. <laughs> Amazing. Well, there you go. All right. So first additions to the court. That is momentous indeed. They may not be momentous additions, but the, what they represent is. Is momentous. I think it's fitting that we're starting from the lower classes. I mean, we're going to encounter quite a few people here, but I feel like it's important that we start at, at some good roots. Final rating. In this segment, we each rate the story out of 10, and then average the two together. Well, I got a great deal of enjoyment out of going through this text. I did not translate it, so I cannot speak to its translatability and how easy <laughs> or difficult that was. But I think I will give it... I will give it a solid 8 out of 10. It's short, it's funny, you get a lot out of it, you learn a lot about the lower classes. You learn a lot about the middle class as well, and, and how they thought about the lower class. <laughs> So, yeah, I'd rate this a solid 8 out of 10. I think this is a good text. It's a good one to start with. When I was coming into this recording session, I was planning to rate it fairly low because I feel like it's classist and that upsets me, but it's also honestly fun. That's true. The elements of kind of class conflict that you see here tells us a lot about those classes, as you say. So there's a lot of stuff there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go as high as 8, but I will give it a 6. There we go. A six out of ten. Yeah, I think, let's see. I feel like we should we should elaborate on what it's missing in particular. Hmm. What do you think the text is missing? Well, compared to some of the other texts we'll have on here later, there's a lot that could be... I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this, but <laughs> a lot of the stuff we're going to read is bad insane and this one's just kind of true okay that's true that's true i would also have liked to see more from tib i think that's important i think that's going to be hard to find in medieval literature though that's true but the text that i want to go through that we can do next time has a very powerful female character in it uh -huh. so and she does have a lot of agency so i feel like i feel like it can be done i shall rescind my rating Oh. And I shall bump it down to a seven because, as you say, there's more hilarity coming and we have much more, much more to do, I think. Yeah. And I agree that there is, there would be a way to give Tib more, I'm trying to think of a, a word, more involvement and more of a personality without going too definitely. far out of what you would expect from a medieval text. Like, yeah. there's stuff there. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Seven and six. Good ratings. Oh. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. You should explain what the Leech's Corner is yes, I should. for our listeners. So here in the Leech's Corner, we will share with our listeners a, I hesitate to say medical, but a treatment <laughs> for some kind of ailment that is prescribed by medieval doctors, a.k.a. leeches. The one I'm going to bring this time is from very early in the Leech book. This is... Volume 1, Chapter 1, Remedy Number 6. 
And it reads as follows. For headache, take willow and oil, reduce to ashes, work to a viscid substance, add to this hemlock and carline and the red nettle, pound them, put them then on the viscid stuff, bathe therewith. Also against headache, burn a dog's head to ashes, snip the head, (laughs) and lay it on you. Oh, wow. The first one I was like, okay, all right, we get the hemlock and the nettle. I, I, like, I really wouldn't go for those. But, you know, all right, okay. But the, I, I was not expecting the dog's head. Is that phrase for a plant or is that an actual dog's head? According to uh, Cockaine, who is the, the translator of the like canonical edition of the Leech book, which is contained in the, the, the volume Leechdom's Wart Cunnings and Starcraft of Early England. Woohoo! They have the, the best title names. I know, right? According to him, it is absolutely an actual head. Wow! Presumably, the idea is, if your own head is hurting, obviously taking an animal's head will help in the remedy. That makes sense. And I think this this kind of illustrates the interface between reasonable medicine. Mm-hmm. Willow bark is what they make aspirin out of, or at least it's, yeah. the, it's the same um, chemical. Same base ingredient, yeah. Yeah, so there's some herbal knowledge that willow is good for headaches. And mm-hmm. then there's some other herbs that may or may not mean anything. And the fact that you're not ingesting any of them, but you're bathing in them means they may not have understood whoever wrote this didn't understand why willow bark was associated with was... curing headaches. And so gave right. the wrong application instruction. And then there's also the magic part that's like, and also a dog head, hopefully yeah. from a dog that has died of natural causes. Hopefully. Because otherwise that gets grim. I'm never that desperate to get rid of my headache. Although I don't personally suffer from migraines. So maybe if you're a migraine sufferer, you feel like that's necessary. But personally, I would rather just go through it. Also, I do do worry about what happens if you put red nettles in your bag. Yeah. I'm just thinking about that. It's like, ooh. But you're mixing it with so many other ingredients. And it's interesting that there's there's no measurements for this. It's just, you know... Yeah, that's a real problem. Eyeballing it, you know, just see what happens. Like, how much, you know, how much hemlock are you using exactly? <laughs> that's my question. That is a recurring problem in these recipes, <laughs> is that a lot of them call for hemlock and other poisonous herbs, and they do not say how much. Well, I mean, it'll put you out for sure. Maybe forever. <laughs> there is a recipe for a sleeping potion that includes hemlock and hensbane, both of which are poisonous. Oh, no. That you mix with alcohol and then drink. Yeah, that'll do so it. That'll it'll put you out. you out. Mm-hmm. Open question whether you will wake back up. Oh no! Well, oh dear. Yeah, that'll that'll do it. So there's a, there's a lot of these, and we'll have like we will not run out of these. Definitely not. There's a lot there. That's fantastic. Okay, well, so shall we wrap it up for this time, and we'll come back next time with some Irish folklore, which I'm excited to jump into. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. For more geeky editions, or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. 
And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. Check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Oh, a good doggo. I specifically bought her a rawhide today, so she would not be <laughs> recording anything. But apparently, it has lost its novelty. You need something? Alright, I'm just going to keep petting you while I can. <laughs>